Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This is on page 1248 if you're using the Pew Bible. Tonight's sermon text will be verse 9, but I will begin the reading in verse 5 and run through 11 to provide uh, additional context. Give ear now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Great God of heaven, we rejoice to hear from your word. Would you please help us to consider the glory of your Son? Help us to behold him, to trust him, and hope in him as we live for him. May our hearts exalt Christ as he is revealed in your word to us tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Are you satisfied? Are you content? It has long been observed that by far the largest section in any bookstore is the self-help section. And this is generally, and I would say rightly taken, as evidence that our culture is not satisfied, is not content, despite all of the financial prosperity we enjoy, despite all of the personal freedom we enjoy, despite the seeming limitless avenues for entertainment and information that are at our fingertips every minute of every hour of every day, we remain discontent. We still seek help to get through this thing called life, and 99 out of 100 of those self-help books is promoting one version or another of what's called the law of attraction. The most blasphemous version of this teaching is espoused by the well-known televangelist Joel Osteen. In his 2016 book called The Power of I Am, which is not a book about the sovereign power of the Lord who revealed himself as the great I Am in Exodus 3, no, it's about your self-perception. Osteen writes, and I quote, Whatever follows those words, I am, will always come looking for you. And so he, he encourages his readers to say, I am prosperous, I am healthy, I am getting stronger, I am, I am, I am. And whatever you put after that will follow. This is the law of attraction in three words. Thoughts create things. 
And so what you think about will manifest itself into reality. This is propagated by many popular teachers. Osteen among them, of course, Oprah Winfrey, and several other popular books like The Secret. And what this tells us then is that the world's answer to dissatisfaction is to look within to the desires of our heart and find a way to make those desires a reality. Now, the Bible agrees that dissatisfaction is a problem. The Apostle James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. As is so often the case, the world is trying to solve a real problem, but provides a solution that actually makes the problem worse. The solution to dissatisfaction cannot be found within because that is where the problem is. The solution is found not in looking in, but in looking up. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, is calling the church to set aside their personal differences and work together that they might let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1, 27. That they might have the mind that is theirs in Christ Jesus amongst themselves. Philippians 2, 5. And as we saw last month, Paul defined what that mind of Christ is. He defined how it acts. It's a humble mind, which we saw in Christ's incarnation. When, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he made himself of no reputation and took to himself the form of a servant. And then he humbled himself even further in sacrificial obedience, even to the point of the death of the cross. The sacred head was indeed Wounded, And in his example, we found the great model for how we are to act. And if Philippians 2, 6 to 8, is the model for how the mind of Christ acts, then Philippians 2, 9 is the model for how the mind of Christ thinks, or rather, what it thinks on. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, follows this same humiliation, exaltation scheme when it tells us that Christ endured the cross. That's humiliation, and that he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is his exaltation. In the same way, then, we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us by looking to Jesus. And the wonderful thing about looking to Jesus is that he is not still on the cross. He is not continually being sacrificed as some false churches might present him. Nor is he still dead in some unknown location, as skeptics would have us believe. No, he is, as our text says, highly exalted. And as we look to Jesus, we want to look not only to what he has done in the past, as was our focus in the previous passage, but we want to focus on where he is presently, and further, what implications that has for the mind that we are supposed to be cultivating in this life. Paul's logic at this point in the passage is similar to a statement that he makes in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, Colossians 3, 1-2. If you think on the things that are on earth, you will behave like the people of the world. 
You will be given over to grumbling and selfish ambition and vainglory and all the things that Paul warns us to steer away from earlier in this chapter. But, if you set your mind on Christ, you will have your life conformed to his. That's why Paul directs our attention here. That in looking to Jesus, we might be moved to worship. And in worshiping him, be changed in our lives. And so tonight, we will turn our eyes upon Jesus and consider his exaltation under two headings. First, the degree of his exaltation. And secondly, the manner of his exaltation. The degree of his exaltation and the manner of his exaltation. As I said earlier, verse 9 marks a sharp turn in content from what we saw in verses 6 to 8. In verses 6 to 8, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, serves as the subject. He's the one doing all of the actions. But now, in verse 9, the subject has changed to God the Father. Peter O'Brien observes, God the Father is now presented as decisively intervening and acting on his Son's behalf. And the abruptness of this change in subject tells us that it's significant to Paul, not only that Christ is exalted, but that he is exalted by the Father. We know something of what this is like. We understand the principle that the source of the praise can often magnify its significance. Think, for example, of maybe a young musician it's great to encourage them and to build them up, and it's wonderful for their peers to, to, to speak kind words and to say that was a good uh, performance. And that's good and right and appropriate to do. But dare I say, that acclaim means a lot more when it comes from their instructor. In this, in this way, we see that the, the office bears on the significance of the exaltation. Now, of course, that's not a perfect analogy because Jesus has no peers, But the point remains, the fact that the Father is the one doing the praising is designed to heighten our appreciation of the degree of it. One commentator put it this way, The great God is expressing a value judgment about his Son. Nothing will do but that he should be lifted up to the highest of all. For in the Father's eyes, he is the highest of all. Matthew Harmon agrees. He says, It is breathtaking to contemplate. This is the great goal of human history, that Jesus Christ would be seen as supreme above all things. And this is astounding because while on earth, in the incarnation, Jesus said that he had come to do the will of his Father. And at one point, he even says, The Father is greater than I. But now... In the exaltation, the Father is saying that it is the Son who is deserving of all glory, laud, and honor. The Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This phrase, highly exalted, it's a single word in the Greek. And it only appears one time in the entire New Testament, and it's right here in Philippians 2.9 which is to say that the degree to which Christ is exalted is utterly unique. He is in a class by himself. It is an exceptionally high exaltation the Father bestows on him. But the question is not 
what does God think of Jesus? The question is, what do you think of Jesus? The other day, I was playing with my kids, and my son got this idea in his head that it might be fun to sneak up on his mom in the kitchen and try and spook her. I assure you, I have not the faintest clue where he would get the idea that this would be a fun thing to do. But he insisted that he wear my shoes while he did it. I tried to reason with him. I tried to tell him, look, you you will have more precision and, and speed in your approach if you will just take off daddy's shoes. But I don't know if you guys know this or not. Three-year-old boys are stubborn people. He refused. Why? Because the most important thing to him was to be like dad. In the same way, we as adopted children of God, the Father, ought to labor as far as we are able to love the things that he loves, to make much of the things that he makes much of, and he makes much of the Lord Jesus. He says, therefore, be ye holy as I am holy. He wants us to be like him. There's no question about how God the Father feels about Jesus. God has lifted his name high. And we'll see how that was done in the next section. But how highly do you esteem Jesus? I trust that most of us would say we regard him very highly. I would like to think that everyone here would say we regard him the highest of all. But what do our actions and lives show? Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. And Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on this passage, offers a most chilling warning. He says... If the Father exalts Jesus to the highest place, he will find any lesser honor accorded to his Son intolerable. Here, then, is one way in which we can recognize those whose hearts are really in tune with God's. What do they make of Jesus? If we do not desire to see him honored, then we are at odds with the Father, and the reality of our faith in his Son is very much in doubt. Is Christ of all your hopes the ground? Is he the spring of all your joy? Is his praise your highest aim? Is his smile your chief delight? You must wrestle with these things. Now, of course, we know that no one is going to do this perfectly all the time, and we are thankful for the grace of Jesus that covers all of our sins. But nonetheless, it is appropriate for us to occasionally run a cardiology report, as it were, check on our heart, how is my affection for Jesus doing? Is your life marked by close daily communion with him in prayer and Bible reading? Heads of homes, are you catechizing your children and teaching them the scriptures? Children, are you disciplining yourself and applying yourself to know the scriptures and to learn these catechism answers? What does family worship look like? Do you make it a point to give God glory for something good in your life or for preserving you through a difficult time, especially in conversations with non-believers? Is it possible that we are excited to share sports and music and entertainment and recreations with friends and family, but somehow we forget 
to share Christ and lift Him high up to one another? Is it possible that compared to all the joys and pleasures that this life affords, we just don't find the worship and praise of Christ all that thrilling? I'm not saying, do you not believe this? I'm actually positing something that's far more dangerous. Is it possible that we believe these things to be true in our mind and remain unmoved by them in our hearts? Is it possible? Again, Dr. Ferguson challenges us. When asked, most of us will say, of course I want to go to heaven. But do we? If that is what it's really like, all the attention and praise being paid to Christ, if we do not want that in the here and now, why would we want it in the there and then? Now, I know these are heavy questions to wrestle through and and heavy things to think through, but we must because Paul is not telling the Philippians something that they did not already know with regards to the Father's affection for the Son. Look back at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's telling them this because it's essential to think through these things if we are to have the mind of Christ. And it is so often these things that we find more enjoyable, more pleasurable, that those things that we would never say are more important than him, but sometimes we treat them as though they are, that those are the very things that are the source of the strife and the division in our lives. And so, as we think on the Father's exaltation of Christ, we're to ask ourselves, how am I doing in that regard? And the reality is, every single person in this room could be doing better. Because the standard is not, how am I exalting Christ as measured by my progressive Christian friend? The standard is not, how am I exalting Christ in comparison to my, my, my atheistic neighbor? No, the, the standard is, how am I exalting Christ the way the Father would have me. Surely, none of us are. And if you find that discouraging, if you're discouraged when you consider failures to properly exalt Christ, then it is my great joy to tell you that nobody, nobody wants you to improve on this area more and is more willing to help you than God in heaven. And if you pray to him, asking for the help of his spirit, that he would help you magnify the name of Christ, he will surely do it. He will help you to speak boldly about Jesus with those who are lost. He will help you to praise his name in the home. And he will help you to study the deep things of his word, for the works of God are studied by all those who delight in them. Psalm 111.2 Christian, he has already given you Christ. Surely he will also give you a heart to love him more and exalt him even higher. Ask and you shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Now how exactly did the Father exalt Christ? In in what manner did this take place? Well, the people of God have traditionally understood the exaltation of Christ and have traditionally spoken of it in relation to four historic events. You know these events well, and you even know them in sequence, because we confess them all the time in morning worship. They are part of the ABCs of Christianity. They're in the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed. The exaltation of Christ is seen first in that on the third day he rose again from the dead. 
Secondly, that he ascended into heaven. Thirdly, that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And fourth, that from thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. Those are the four manners or points in history of Christ's exaltation. And we will consider tonight just the first three of those. And we will save the return for our next passage as that becomes Paul's main focus. But it's important to ponder at this point, why does Christ need to be exalted anyway? Our passage says he's, he's, the, he's in the very form of God. There is no higher than that. Surely he needs no more acclamation. Many theologians posit that the resurrection and the ascension are the necessary results of Christ's perfect active obedience. That is to say that he lived the perfect sinless life and so God had no choice but to do this. There may be something to that. But I believe John Calvin offers a better answer. He suggests that just as the scriptures always speak of Christ's incarnation and his crucifixion as being to our advantage and for our sake, so also we ought to see the exaltation of Christ as having our interest in mind. Calvin reasons as to Christ's humiliation, life is procured for us. He then explains that it would be counter to everything Paul speaks of Christ in this passage to assert that he merited glory for himself ahead of salvation for us. And I would argue that this reasoning is not unique to Calvin or even original to him. He's just following the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed, which as it begins to speak of Christ, says, who for us and for our salvation. And then it says, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. And he suffered for us under Pontius Pilate. And then under that same heading, for us and for our salvation, the third day he was raised again according to the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. In other words, Christ's exaltation is it's something like a star athlete who wins a major award and he looks into the camera and he says to his wife and to his kids, all those hours of practice and training and sacrifice, that was all for you. And so also this award is for you. The parallel then for the Christian is that all parts of Christ's humiliation were for you. And all parts of his exaltation are for you. And as Christians, we are not merely beneficiaries of these realities. We're not just passively receiving them. Though we are beneficiaries, we also participate in them. Firstly, God exalted Jesus in his resurrection. I suspect that this is the first thing that would come to our minds when we think of Christ's honor, and rightly so. The scriptures make much of it. In Peter's sermon at Pentecost, after referencing the death of Christ, he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 2, 24. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is, among other things, God's seal of approval on the, on the earthly life of the Lord Jesus, declaring that he had perfectly and fully obeyed God's law in every jot and tittle. Every other human being who has ever tasted death 
death had a legitimate claim on that person. Because we know that every other human being who ever died has sinned. And the scripture tells us plainly, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, though he took our debt on himself and paid it all, he had no guilt of his own. And so having satisfied God's wrath against your sin and mine, Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose. And he rose from the dead in that very same body that hung on the cross. The resurrection of Christ is is our assurance, not only that Jesus fully kept the law, but also that he had totally, fully satisfied God's wrath against all of our sin. Every drop, there is nothing else to pay. It is finished. And also, in his raising, Christ conquered the very power of death. The resurrection of Christ is among other things, the beginning of the reversal of the curse. Christ himself being the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to him. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Now, that's in brief all of the ways that we benefit from Christ's resurrection. But how do we participate in it? Christ's exaltation in the resurrection is actually the very power by which we can achieve the Christian unity that Paul is pressing us towards. Because just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so you who who are in Christ were once dead in your trespasses and sins, and God has made alive together with Christ. And having been renewed in the whole man, and given spiritual life, you are now able more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness, the Scripture says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. The resurrection is the power behind our sanctification. And that's good news because trying to put sin to death in our life is hard. And sometimes it can seem like victory is beyond hope. And there are some pastors that will tell you that it is beyond hope. But I tell you on the authority of God's word that that is a lie. When you feel that victory over sin is beyond hope, remember that Christ is exalted. And just as he died to pay the penalty for your sins, so he was also raised to free you from their power. And he does. And that leads to the second way that God exalted Jesus. That same body, now risen with all its scars, is ascended into heaven. Now, Dr. Phillips just recently preached a full sermon on the ascension, so I won't dwell on this one for quite as long. But I will mention just a few things that Jesus has accomplished for us in his ascension. For one, he's gone there to receive gifts for men such as apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. That's Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. And so we benefit in that way, that he gives these good gifts to his church. But we also participate in the ascension because the purpose of those gifts is to equip the saints for ministry and to build them up in maturity and unity in the faith. The idea then is that as we meditate on Christ's ascension, we will be so captured by joy and so busy exercising the gifts that he's given us that we will just get too busy to get caught up in the selfish ambition and the vain glory that is so tempting in this life. 
And further, as is his way, Christ's grace to us in the ascension abounds even more. Our cup is not just full, friends. It is overflowing. Because he is not only in the ascension pouring out gifts for the here and now, but Jesus said, In my Father's house, there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. He is preparing for us a heavenly country, a city whose builder and designer is God. And as we reflect on Christ and adore him in his ascension and building a heavenly home for us, it becomes really silly to get bogged down with the petty things of this life. And the third and final way that we will consider that God has exalted him takes things even further. Because Jesus, as to his humanity, he's not just in heaven as a common resident. He is not just down the hall from Enoch and Elijah. No. He is seated at the Father's right hand. Christ Jesus, Romans 8.34 said, is the one who died more than that who was raised and who is at the right hand of the Father. That right hand, that's the position of power and authority. He's there to rule and to reign as his Father makes all his enemies a footstool. Larger Catechism 54 summarizes the biblical teaching this way. Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God. In that as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father, with all fullness of joy and glory and power over all things in heaven and on earth, and doth gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnisheth his ministers and people with gifts and graces. And so when we confess that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, We are saying that he is ruling and reigning over all things. And that he is especially watching over to provide for his church. To make sure that his adopted brothers and sisters are pitied and protected and provided for. What a blessed thought that is. So many of the things that we quarrel about. So many of the things that divide us, they could all be very easily resolved, especially the matters pertaining to the church, if we would stop and realize that Christ at the right hand of the Father means all of these things we're fighting about. None of them belong to me, and none of them belong to you. They all belong to him and are to be used by his means and for his ends. Knowing that Christ is at the right hand of the Father ought to remind us all of our common purpose, which is to serve Him. But Christ is ruling and reigning not as some dispassionate sovereign who has given us marching orders and some supplies and said, good luck. He has given us marching orders. He has given us supplies. But He also promised He would never leave us nor forsake us. The scriptures say that he is at the Father's right hand and is interceding for us. He's currently praying for us. He's praying for you. What would it change about your anxieties and your frustrations in life if you stopped in the middle of them and remembered this simple fact? That Christ is exalted. And in his exaltation, he's praying 
on your behalf for your situations. In the same way that a child is assured by the prayers of their parent, or a church member is assured by the prayers of their pastors and elders, it ought to be that every Christian is made confident by this fact that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for his saints. These are all the ways that we're beneficiaries of that. But we also participate in the fact that Christ is at the right hand of the Father. We participate in that every single time we pray. Every prayer that you offer to God the Father presupposes and depends on Jesus being at his right hand. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We participate in this. And having seen the degree of Christ's exaltation and the manner in which he is exalted, it would be wise to ask the question, why does Paul bring all of this up in the middle of his plea for humility and unity? It's easy to see why he would bring up the humiliation. But how does this exaltation, which seems to be the very opposite of humility, how does that play into this point in the letter? The late Gordon Fee explains, Paul's reason is singular, to focus on Christ himself. You see, rightly understood, the exaltation makes crystal clear that apart from Jesus, we have nothing to boast about. That will promote humility. But more than that, it promotes unity. When we remember that everybody in this room is currently still working through the process of sanctification, it becomes much easier to overlook their faults, to cover their sins with grace, and to work together. When we remember that Christ is ascended in heaven and is freely pouring out gifts for his elect, then we can share those gifts with an open hand and not quarrel about them. When we understand that Jesus is exalted to the Father's right hand and is interceding for us, namely, that we would be united around the truth and striving together for the advance of the gospel, we will pursue that. Again, Fee explains, unity in Christ was the absolutely necessary evidence of the gospel at work in his churches. Redemption that does not redeem is merely soft mush. Redemption that does not issue in forgiveness, that does not crush complaining against and arguing with one another in the church, mocks this narrative. We are not called upon simply to imitate God by what we do, but to have his mind, the very mind of Christ, developed in us. You see, Paul is going right to the very heart of the matter. The problem with the church at Philippi is not that she needed new doctrine. It's that she was not rightly thinking through and applying the doctrine that she already knew. And so Paul points her to Jesus. And that is exactly what we need today. So often the problems and our fights are at their core and evidence that one or another of us has taken our eyes off of Jesus. We are like Peter getting out of the boat and walking to the Lord, and when we keep our eyes on him, things are going well. But when we take our eyes off, what happens? We sink and fall, and he picks us back up. And so as we conclude then, I ask again, are you satisfied?
Are you content in this life? The way to be satisfied is not to live your best life now. It's not to learn the secret or employ some other aspect of the law of attraction. No. The way to find peace with others and satisfaction in this life is to fix your eyes on the exalted Christ, the one who has won the victory over the curse in his resurrection, who has poured out gifts that we need in his ascension, and who is currently praying for you right now at the Father's right hand things more abundantly than you could ask or think. He is the joy of all who dwell above, the joy of all below. He is our peace and satisfaction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that our King Jesus is highly exalted. We rejoice because of the assurance that that provides us. And we ask that you would help us to lift him up in our hearts as you have exalted him over all creation. And as we pursue minds conformed to Christ, would you cause us to grow in love and affection for others? We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.